Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. Shared decision-making. It's a newish term for an old concept that maybe we could be doing better. It's a framework where you share information and options with your patients, discuss the upsides and downsides of a given treatment, and take into account both a physician's experience and knowledge, as well as a given patient's values, goals, needs, preferences, and their risk tolerance. Now, multiple studies have investigated the role of shared decision-making in emergency medicine from the physician perspective. But today we're discussing a paper looking at this from the patient's perspective. Dr. Elizabeth Schoenfeld and her team recently published in AEM an article entitled, A Qualitative Analysis of Patients' Perceptions of Shared Decision-Making in the Emergency Department. Quote, let me know I have a choice. In this study, Dr. Schoenfeld and her partners sought to investigate what factors affect patients' desired level of involvement in shared decision-making, and what barriers or facilitators patients found to be relevant in their experience. Dr. Schoenfeld is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Bay State Medical Center, the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State. She's also a researcher at the Institute for Healthcare Delivery and Population Science, also at UMass Medical School, Bay State. She's being interviewed today by Dr. Anatoly Kazakin, a PGY4 in emergency medicine at Brown and just about a brand new attending in emergency medicine. Good morning, Dr. Schoenfeld. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat about your paper. I'd love if we could just jump in. And for those of you who have not yet read it, if you could give us a brief summary of what's known about shared decision-making and what aspects of shared decision-making you hope to address respective to the emergency department. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, so although people have been talking about shared decision-making in medicine for a few decades, there are only a few studies about shared decision-making in the context of uh, emergency medical care. Um, several of us have looked at, in various studies, how the physicians perceive shared decision-making and use shared decision-making, but we felt that the patient's perspectives were, were missing at this time. And of course, the point of shared decision-making is to involve the patients and engage them, so it made sense to try to get a better understanding from their perspectives. When do they want to be involved and not be involved, and what factors change that, and then how we can help them be more involved, if that's what they want. Um, and so that's where we started and why we did this research. If you could, describe for us, in a nutshell, how your study was conducted. Sure. So we used qualitative methods. Qualitative methods are the best place to start when you have something that hasn't really been well described in a certain population, because if you jump in with something like a survey, you've already biased the answers you're going to get, and you may limit what you learn to the things that you're already expecting to learn. So what we did was we approached stable and some somewhat unstable patients together with their family and friends, whoever was in the emergency department with them, and we asked them open-ended questions about their involvement with decision-making, both in general and in the emergency department. And then we got into some examples and some details, and we sort of explored further. And we ended up interviewing 29 people um, or their proxies, and we got a lot of uh, input from the people around them, some commentary from their friends and family. If you could, could you describe your mindset for approaching the shared decision-making framework when situations are so varied and range from low-risk situations such as gluing or suturing a laceration to admitting a person with a question of a chest pain diagnosis? 
Sure. So we started with really open-ended questions because we actually wanted to hear was shared decision-making being used and in what context these patients had experience with shared decision-making. And so people gave us some great examples about, oh, well, when I had my trigger finger done or, oh, you know, the, ho- the doctor actually did that recently. We were talking about anticoagulation for my PE. Um, but a lot of patients couldn't give us an example of shared decision-making. About half of people said that they had never been involved in a decision about um, their own health care uh, in their entire lives. And that's why we made up some hypothetical scenarios to explore the factors that might influence whether people wanted to be involved. And so because we wanted really varied scenarios, we made up a scenario that was about gluing versus suturing um, for a laceration, sort of a minor issue versus admission versus discharge for chest pain, which is a little bit more serious. And that helped us assess what are the factors that made people want to be involved or not be involved. And what we saw is that there were some people who really cared about gluing versus suturing. They said, hey, this is my body. And if there's trade-offs and pros and cons, I want to be involved. And then there was other people who said, I don't really care. It's just a cut. You know, I've been in construction my whole life. I don't really care that much about a cut. And then similarly with the chest pain, some people said, wow, that's really serious. I would want the doctor to make that decision or, wow, that's really serious. I would definitely want to be involved in that decision. And what strategies are you employing to overcome the perceived barriers to shared decision-making in the emergency department, especially the time constraints that many worry about? So we've looked at barriers to shared decision-making, the literature, and when I say we, I mean sort of all of us. And the thing that the physicians always cite is time. And time is obviously a big issue, and there's a lot of different things we can do to address time. What we were trying to get at with this study is what are the patient's barriers to shared decision-making. And I think the biggest barrier we found is that patients were just unaware that decisions were actually happening. But obviously, the barriers from the physician standpoint are probably the biggest barriers because they are the ones that initiate shared decision-making. So personally, I think it's helpful to have a mental script to know what you're actually going to say when you walk in the room so that you're able to say it really clearly. I always start with, we have a decision to make and lay out the two options. And then sometimes I lay out what would make me go one way or the other. Oh, if you were older, I would definitely be admitting you for this. Or, oh, if there was X, I would definitely do this. And that helps the patient sort of weigh in regarding certain factors. So then I explain the potential consequences of each decision, each option. And then I see what they think by asking questions about what's important to them. Um, And so the time constraints can be a problem, um, but the better you get at it, the more frequently you do it, the, the faster and more efficiently you are able to do it. In that same vein, have you incorporated shared decision-making training into the residency program at Bay State? And how are you best teaching these skills? This is definitely an ongoing area of research, how to best teach shared decision-making. So we have a shared decision-making lecture. We talk about it in didactics. And then we also talk about it in the context of the disease-specific education. So I give a lecture on renal colic, and I talk about how to fit shared decision-making into uh, the presentation of a patient with flank pain. And so I think that my teaching style is starting to lean more towards the scripts I was talking about. But this is actually for both residents and attendings. Attendings need education on shared decision-making as well, because we could always do this better. Uh, I think there's something to be said for finding the clearest way that you can say something and then trying to say it the same way every time. But resident education and shared decision-making is actually a big problem. We, We recently published a study in the Journal of Graduate Medical Education that showed that basically the same ED attendings will use shared decision-making less often when they work with residents. So it's the same doctors, but if they're on their own, seeing their own patients, or if they're in a community setting, they will use shared decision-making more. 
Somehow the presence of the residents and the setting of a teaching hospital makes them less likely to involve the patients in, this, in their decisions. And this means that the residents are getting fewer opportunities to learn and the patients have less involvement if they happen to present to a teaching hospital versus a community hospital. So we're missing these teaching opportunities and also these chances to empower our patients. In numerous global studies, the United States performs poorly compared to other developing nations with regards to literacy and numeracy. And in your study, you noted that 55% of your patients had a high school education or less. How do you address the complexity of small numerical risks with potentially delayed consequences in a simple and complete fashion with your patients? Yeah, this is a great question. This is super hard. But I will point out that it's not just our patients that have difficulty with numbers and probabilities. We as clinicians don't always interpret the data correctly, and we have difficulty with, with probabilities. Um, so I would say that if our patients don't fully appreciate the difference between a 1% risk and a 5% risk, we shouldn't necessarily sort of be harping on that and be stuck on making sure that they understand the difference between a 1% and a 5% risk. First of all, the differences are estimates. So we may think that something's a 1% risk, and in reality, it's a 0.1% risk, or it's a 2% risk, or it's a 3% risk. And I think that if we don't really fully know exactly the risk to the patient, and, we, and they don't fully understand that, we shouldn't necessarily be getting into those, um, the detailed numbers. So I don't always use numbers when I speak to patients. I use them occasionally, but sort of cautiously. So for example, if about 80% of people are going to pass their kidney stones without a procedure, regardless of whether they have a CT scan, I'll say, well, you know, most people are going to pass their stones without needing a procedure, but some won't. And if they want numbers or they look like they're interested in numbers, I might give them some numbers. If I'm talking about sort of CT scan versus wait and see for appendicitis, after I've done the full workup, I can say, I'm pretty sure you don't have appendicitis. There's a small chance that you do. And that is sort of what I would say for a 1% to 3% chance. There's a small chance. It's possible, but I don't think you do. And then I talk about what's more important than probabilities is what we're going to do next to make sure that we're going in the right direction and to make sure that they come back if they are in that 1% to 3%. A tough one, like you mentioned, is that future risk of cancer from a CT scan. First of all, it's a pretty small risk. And second of all, it's way in the future. So I might say something like, each CT increases your future risk of cancer by just a little bit, but it adds up. So we try to only use CTs when we think they'll be really helpful. I don't want to dissuade someone from getting a CT scan if I think that they need it, but I also want them to be educated about the fact that this test is not without consequences. In the commentary section of the paper, there were replies from patients and their advocates that expressed concerns about their loved one's safety. Does this represent a shared decision-making opportunity or simply underscore the fact that clinicians sometimes fail to communicate clearly with their patients? Oh, I would say that it's definitely both. We know that we could always be better communicators. And even the doctors around you that you see as great communicators are not perfect communicators every time. Um, one of the quotes that I think you're talking about is um, the family member of a patient said, she could have gone home and died. So the main concern is listening to the patient and not assuming that the doctor knows best all the time. And the context of this was that this was the, uh, the adult son of an older patient, and she was in the emergency room less than 24 hours after being discharged for a diverticular bleed. And she was coming back with multiple episodes of bleeding, and she now required a transfusion. So she was actually pretty sick, but had just been discharged. And she felt that she shouldn't have been discharged. And she knew uh, that based on previous episodes of diverticular bleeding, she would sort of get better and then get worse again. And she sort of had resisted going home. 
Um, and I am not advocating that the doctors should do shared decision making for every time they discharge a patient. But maybe if they had it, talked about it in a slightly different way, she would have been better able to express, hey, I know I haven't bled in 24 hours, but I always get a second bleed that's much worse than the first. And maybe the communication could have been a little bit better. Um, and so the family really felt that they hadn't been listened to. Um, and so whether that was a lack of shared decision making or a lack of communication, you know, you, it, it's hard to say in retrospect. Um, but I think that they both play a role. It seems that with your paper, as well as many of the other publications that are recently being discussed, including on this last month's segment of EM Wrap, there's a growing interest in shared decision making and how best to incorporate it into the clinical emergency setting. Do you have any additional thoughts that you might add to the June EM Wrap segment with Dr. Swadron and Dr. Probst? Yeah, there's definitely a growing interest in, in shared decision making. I think that clinicians are really beginning to recognize what shared decision making can do for us and for our patients. And that by itself could be a whole podcast on its own. Why, why do we do shared decision making? First, it respects patient autonomy. Um, second, it may allow us to individualize care a little bit better and provide the right patient to the right care uh, at the right time. Um, and it, I think it improves our relationships, which probably improves patient satisfaction. And I think it, there's a whole host of other reasons why shared decision-making is really good for all of us. Um, and so I think Dr. Probst and, and I and everyone else who are involved are trying to spread the word that there's more opportunities for shared decision-making in our daily practice than we necessarily recognize. Anytime you're on the fence about two options, that might be an opportunity for shared decision-making. Doesn't mean you need to bring every little decision back to the patient, but certainly we could be using shared decision-making more. If we're prescribing opiates, if we're considering an admission that might be low yield, if we're considering diagnostic imaging, and the, the list sort of goes on and on. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us this morning and shed a little bit more light into your work. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I think that one thing that we should probably think a little bit more about when we do shared decision making is the, the risks that we are not so good at thinking about. So often when we are doing shared decision making, we're thinking about the risk of harm that comes from not doing the thing that we might otherwise do. So you're thinking about admitting a patient for chest pain and you're thinking about sending them home. And we think that the risk is that, oh, well, if I send them home and they have a bad event, you know, that would be bad for them and that would be bad for me. But we always forget to think about the risks of admitting people to the hospital and the risk of the CT scan. And so we need to consider both risks. And sometimes when we pay a little bit more attention to both sides of that coin, um, it may encourage us to do a little bit more shared decision making with our patients. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. Make sure to read the full text of this article, available open access through August 1st on our blog at brownemblog.com. You'll also find a summary and references for additional reading. Subscribe to our iTunes channel. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa. Thanks again and see you next time.